0: hello and welcome to another episode of impressions of america i'm simon and with me as always is toby hi toby hi simon we are joined today by special guest kevin Matson, author and professor of contemporary history at ohio university kevin thank you so much for joining us Great to be with you guys. Kevin has written many texts on 20th century American history, including What the Heck Are You Up To, Mr. President, Jimmy Carter, America's Malays, and The Speech That Should Have Changed the Country, which, along with the Carter presidency itself, will be the main focus of today's show. So, uh, Kevin, could you uh, just briefly describe uh, what the book is about?
1: Well, the book is about, in some ways, the year of 1979. That's the year that the the, the book focuses on, and it opens up with um, the kind of gas crisis, energy crisis that's that's uh, erupted in America, um, and and all the problems that that we start to see, such as that I've talked about before, the 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 violence that you see on the gas lines and so forth and so on. And then it it turns its attention to the way the Carter administration is trying to make sense of what's happening in America at this point in time. A large part of the book is, is is about the debates amongst different, different people within the administration and what they think should be done to confront the energy crisis. And gradually you see a, a, a kind of div, a, the development of Pat Cadell's idea that this should be a, that the president should give a speech as much about a broader civic crisis than just the energy crisis, and then it kind of squeezes up, so to speak, um, to focus on on the, the 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 moments very close to the time of the speech, which is given on July 15th, where he f- goes to Camp David brings a lot of people in to listen to criticisms of his own presidency and to talk about big, broad ideas like covenant theology, um, a culture of narcissism, the me decade, all these types of things, and then exactly how the speech is actually written. And that's the moment at which things get really very tense because there's a kind of, he cancels the speech on July 5th and then gives the speech on July 15th, so it means that there's a very short, compact period of time in which people are struggling to kind of write the speech that that they want to give. And then after the the fall out the speech and its reception, which was very, very positive. It then shifts to the ways in which there are people kind of hiding and lurking in the wings, and that includes Ronald Reagan and Ted Kennedy, who start to to use the speech as a way to attack Carter, to kind of turn it into a cudgel, to kind of beat up Carter by emphasizing this idea of malaise and by saying that Jimmy Carter has lost faith in the American people. And then it kind of ends on, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan's um, uh, victory in 1980 and, and focuses on the ways in which he has kind of used the, the, the idea of Malays to basically win the
0: presidency. Why did you decide to write about Jimmy Carter and in particular this speech?
1: Well, you know, I teach uh, introductory courses in American history uh, to undergraduates at Ohio University, and I would always assign this speech. Um, And what I found consistently happening was that students would say to me things along the lines of, gosh, I wish we had a president that spoke that honestly and that forthrightly to us today. Um, And this, of course, was really mostly at the height of the George W. Bush administration, where I think a a lot of young people felt that, you know, the rhetorical skills of the president were pretty Poor to put it politely, and I think they reacted so you know favorably to Carter's speech, and it was surprising because you know here's a speech that was notorious for deriding America's consumer culture, for saying that Americans have lost faith in democracy and things like that, and strangely enough, the students said you know we really like this, we really want to hear um, you know we want to hear a president who speaks like this, so it made me want to write a, the history of how the speech actually you know took place and 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 what and what it became,
0: so. In the book, you mention a topic which is uh, very close to our hearts, The Simpsons. In the episode Margin Chains, we see the residents of Springfield trying to raise money to build a statue of Abraham Lincoln, but after falling short of their target, the mayor has to unveil a cheaper alternative instead, and we have a clip of what happens next. I uh, give you our 39th president, Jimmy Carter. Oh, come on. He's history's greatest monster. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what a great clip Uh, just to note the plaque on Carter's statue read "Malays forever so very fitting (laughs) Uh, Kevin could you tell us a bit more about that scene in relation to your book and why you chose to mention it
1: well, I think it just goes to show you the the kind of reputation Carter gained, um, and and largely around the speech that I write about. Um, you know, the the word "malaise" is never actually used within the speech, which is you know entitled the "Crisis of Confidence" speech. Um, it "malaise" was a term that was created and generated by Jimmy Carter's uh, critics, especially Ted Kennedy. But more importantly, in the long term, uh, long run of things, uh, Ronald Reagan. So, what's wh- the fact that he gets known as, you know, being kind of almost. It's, it's- in chain to the term um, malaise is just a reflection of how I think we've gotten a lot of his there's a lot of historical inaccuracies that we inherit and I think that was one of them and I just I I, I love that scene from the Simpsons because it just you know the the, the proportion of the hatred of Jimmy Carter to like what we'd like actually think of as Jimmy Carter is just is remarkable they capture that just almost perfectly the way that he's been demonized and a term that he never actually used has been kind of
2: tagged onto to him it's, it's just perfect. It's it's funny because um, like the fact that he talked about a crisis of confidence warrants him being the worst monster, um have ever seen, which is quite hilarious. It's 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 remarkably funny. And you know, Matt Groening had a
1: has a has a real talent at capturing um, you know kind of the stupid side of America to put in. <laughs> to put in one
2: way. Yeah, that's, so I would just want to ask, like. Um, Could you run through the sequence of events that led up to the speech?
1: Well, um, what's in the background um, of of the speech is the fact that America is still facing an energy crisis that had erupted earlier as Back as 1973 under under Richard Nixon's presidency, it's come back with a vengeance in 1979. Um, gas has basically been cut off. Um, Americans can't get gas for their cars. Um, there's rationing going on. Um, there's you know near riots breaking out on gas lines that are that are posing a huge problems to to the kind of feel of America's civic culture. Um, and so there's a realization on the part of the uh, the Carter administration, Carter himself, that he has to give a speech about. the energy crisis and trying to call the Americans together to try to, you know, uh, get behind some sort of uh, program of conservation in order to correct the problems of our dependency on fossil fuels. And so that generates this whole kind of, you know, closer to the actual time of the speech itself. Um, There's an original draft of a speech that some of Carter's um, uh, speechwriters give to him. And he looks at it and he says, you know, I've written, I've given a lot of speeches on the energy crisis already. And he looks at this speech and he says, you know what, I just don't. I don't I don't like the speech. I don't, and he literally uses the term I don't want to bullshit the American people any longer, and he dumps the speech. They had actually already reserved um, a period of time, uh, July 5th, to, for Carter to give the speech to block out the, the major panel so that he could deliver the speech. And then suddenly he's canceled the speech, kind of at the last moment in, in, the, in many people's minds. And then that leaves Carter to say, you know, I need to do something more uh, for, for to write this speech. And he invites a group of people, uh, a, a kind of cross uh, cast of, of Americans, um, people from very different backgrounds, some from academia, some from business, um, yeah. some from uh, you know, religious religious organizations. And he calls them to Camp David and he says, look, I really want to, you know, try to, try to do something with this speech, another speech in the future, where I can really address not just the energy crisis. Um, that is obviously the most important thing to be addressed. But secondly, this broader civic crisis that he's identified and that some of his, his um, pollsters have also helped him identify. Um, and that is a, a decreasing faith in the, in the federal government, a large in large part because of the legacies of Vietnam and Watergate, and so what he wants to do, and he and he takes feedback at Camp David, he wants to turn what what was just originally going to be an energy crisis speech into a kind of speech about America's civic crisis in in the late 1970s and so he he goes on that he listens to what he, what people are telling him at Camp David jots down a bunch of notes and then decides to write the speech that we come we come to know as the crisis of confidence speech the July 15 1979 so there's a, the, the the thing about the the speech and, and the background and how we get to it is it, there was this intense period of time from about July 5th to July 15th when people weren't sure where Carter was, what he was doing. There was a real kind of mystery that was in the air of Americans' political culture at the time, and it kind of gives it a sort of suspense and almost thriller feel to the way that the speech actually does emerge.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was very well-written and very sort of journalistic. It, the, the narrative was constantly gripping about, you know, whether... Carter was going to give the speech, what the content of the speech was, um, you know, being having the speech looked upon by different people in the administration, uh, Cadell, Eisenstadt, and even uh, Carter's wife. But I do want to narrow in on a particular individual, Pat Cadell. What, Pat Cadell seems to have an outsized influence on this speech, and... Mm-hmm is quite peculiar about it is he seems to have read a lot of quite dense social criticism of American culture that was happening at the time.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. He's, 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 you know, he's understood to be a pollster, but Mm -hmm. he's doing a lot of deep background reading. Um, Carter too is doing a lot of the reading. Um, the problem that we know about Carter's reading skills is that he, he bragged about being a speed reader, which suggests that probably he didn't read text entirely too closely, um, but rather kind of skimmed over them to try to get at the essence of what he thought that they were telling him. Um, but, but Cadell is reading a lot of, um, different authors, uh, probably the most important author and 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 surprising um to find that basically someone who's um the closest thing you can get to an american marxist um is actually being read by someone like Pacadel passed on to jimmy carter suggested that he read it and this is uh christopher lash um, who had a bestseller in 78 79 called the culture of narcissism it's a very very difficult to read book there's a lot of background knowledge you have to have to understand what he's doing a lot of stuff about psychoanalysis a lot of stuff about Marxism. Um, and so you know, one of the things that Cadell is trying to do is trying to kind of open himself up to what we would call some pretty deep critics of, of America's culture at the time. Um, and so, you know, I think Adele sees himself as something of a, as something of a pollster who's also more of an intellectual and something of a social critic himself. And so he's picking up a lot of what Christopher Lash is having to say. What another sociologist during the 1970s who's important to 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 remember, and that's Daniel Bell, who wrote the Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, that's published in about 1977. That's another book that. Um, the Carter uh, that that Cadell and others are really kind of pouring over, um, which argues that there's a kind of hedonistic consumerist impulse in uh, built into capitalism that contradicts um, a, a faith in kind of traditional um, rational behavior guidelines that is also a mm-hmm. part of capitalism and how there's this kind of conflict. So they're reading stuff that's really difficult. And I think it's stuff that's difficult to especially think about how is this going to actually make it into a speech um, that Amer- that the president's going to give to, you know, a,
2: a wide cross-section of the American public. Mm-hmm. And that Americans would absorb. So what? why did you feel that they had come to a point where they felt that American culture, especially with reference to the energy crisis, was particularly narcissistic.
1: Well, I think probably if any if you just go back to those gas line stories that I that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, you can really see, you know, self-interest. So for instance, one of the famous stories that comes off the gas lines is that there's a woman who basically cuts in front of the gas of a gas line at a gas station and she gets out of the car and she's um she she's got a pillow stuffed under her dress. So it looks like she's pregnant. And she pleads, you know, I should be able to get gas quicker than all the rest of the people on the line. And the, the pillow falls out, and all of a sudden there's just a melee going on. And I think what that symbolizes is that there is, there's this kind of self-interest that's at the core of America's culture. And it can turn really vicious and very, very ugly if you have a resource like gasoline kind of pulled off the market, or at least, you know, limited in terms of the marketplace. So I think what you see is you see a kind of aggressive individualism, an aggressive, you know, self-interest um, that erupts on the gas lines that I think makes someone like a Jimmy Carter say, you know, this is a bigger crisis than just an energy crisis. This is something Mm -hmm. about how we don't have any sense of a public good, which might sometimes have to stand in the way of our own self-interest. And I think that's probably the easiest way to kind of get a handle on why they were so, um, you know, wanting to get at the deeper, as they saw it, a kind of deeper crisis rather than just the manifestations of this um, broader energy crisis.
2: So the manifestations were sort of typified through things like the, uh, the gas line riots or things like, uh, you know, rich people having sort of poor people buy gas for them and things like right. that. But right, how But how um, is this particularly related to the Tom Wolfe's idea that this was the me decade and that Carter was sort of surveying or sort of um, trying to come to... Grips with uh, an idea that American culture had become more narcissistic than it was before.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Tom Wolfe's essay is is one of them. One of those. It's pop sociology,
2: but it it, it, it does have a sort of link to um, sort more sort of uh, complicated works like Daniel Bell and people like Mm -hmm. that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if you go back and read the essay, it's also one of these essays, like the culture of narcissism, like the cultural contradiction of capitalism that people will mention, but yet probably haven't actually read. Mm-hmm. Um, they might know it more as it gets distilled and, you know, um, talked about in some other sort of setting. One of the things about Tom Wolfe's essay on the B-Decade, and it is a classic, and the Carter the Carter uh, people are talking about it as well as they're talking about Lash, is that um, Wolfe seems to suggest that this kind of search for meaning and um, for your kind of true self. Um, is uh, basically grounded in a kind of religious pattern. Um, and one of the things that I think Christopher Lash does in the culture of narcissism is that he's a real critic of Wolf. He says that Wolf is kind of superficial in how he explains this. And what 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 Lash says is that this is based in capitalism. This is not just something that, you know, is about suddenly a country full of people saying, I'm concerned about me or what have you. This is something that's endemic to capitalism, um, endemic especially to a kind of consumer capitalism. Um, that people People will look out for their own self-interest over any sort of you know recognition of there being a wider public or civic good. So I think that someone like a, a, a Lash is saying, yeah, you know, there's there's this kind of stereotype of the United States as being you know kind of a bunch of selfish brats. Um, mm-hmm. But in reality, I think what 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 Lash was talking about, and this is why I think it's so difficult for the Carter people to really you know digest the book, um, and I think they kind of misread it in many ways, um, is that you know this is a person saying this is this is the capitalist system. And when Carter gives the speech, I mean, there are these lines in which he says things like, you know, we cannot we, we should no longer believe that piling up uh, individual goods um, is the key to happiness. He really does call into question the consumer culture that America had become known for. And I think that's what makes the speech so radical um, and, and maybe makes it so much more um, appreciated by some of the undergraduates who you know responded to it, as I was saying earlier, you know, really kind of favorably.
2: And in the book, you touch on sort of like softer, like pop culture references to um, American culture becoming more sort of narcissistic, things like uh, Woody Allen's films or like uh, the higher spiraling divorce rate, things like that. And you you mentioned that in the book. Is, Is um, was Pat Cadell reading uh, watching these films as well, and, and the, this was the the influence for him? Because you, you do talk about um, Jimmy Carter being a massive film buff. He was. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, I think that probably one of the, one of the things that I think that you you you, you should remember about nineteen seventy nine is it, it was really the last day, the last uh, year of disco. And one of the biggest, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, hits that comes out in the spring of 1979 is uh, by the new wave band Blondie. Oh uh, uh, yeah, heart of glass. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, in I mean, it's if you just look at the lyrics of the song, it's about people who feel that they cannot make they, they don't have what it takes to make real serious emotional attachments to other people. So you can kind of hear, and I think disco itself, when you think about, you know, it's it's a um, if you look at the the famous, you know, film uh, the posters for for Saturday Night Fever, you know, it's John Travolta standing alone out on the dance floor pointing to the you know inimical, uh, uh inimical uh disco ball above its head. And it's really seen as like it's him dancing for himself. Dancing is not about necessarily flirting with other people or or you know reaching out to other people. It's about expressing yourself. Mm-hmm. So there's so many elements of 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 culture in 1979 that suggests that you know there is this sort of you know pervasive um, meism, uh, selfishness, whatever you're, you you want to label it. Um, with like what yeah, I mean Carter's re- Carter is watching you know movies constantly. In fact. One of the more important or interesting facts to note is that the first movie he ever watches when he's in the White House is All the President's Men um, ah. and about the Watergate crisis, obviously. Mm-hmm. And there's a passage in his diary where he says, you know, I, I realized I was sitting in the same seat of Richard Nixon when I watched this movie. And the movie's very disturbing. Um, it's a kind of neo-noir uh, classic uh, uh, as we see it today. Um, and so I think there's tons of different ways in which popular culture and politics are kind of, you know, informing one another. Um, I, I mean, I, I was trained in graduate school to be what they would call an intellectual historian, where you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're paying attention to ideas as much as just to events. Um, and I've always been a deep believer that, you know, there's, especially when you get into questions of meaning, um, what it means to face a civic crisis, that you can see those things just as much in popular culture as you can say in, you know, the acts of a president or um you know political battles of, of, of different sorts.
2: Do you think that I think you, know, you touched on all the presidents, men, and in that film you you feel the imperial presidency of uh, Richard Nixon. You can see that it's almost like it can spread into. Uh, sort of all caverns of society. but uh, Carter wanted to have a sort of more pared down presidency. Does that come through in his speech? It, it
1: does because you know, it, one of the things that he does when he's at Camp David in preparation for the speech is that he listens to a lot of pretty harsh criticisms of him as a leader um and 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 people saying, you know, we don't you you don't seem to be a leader. You just seem to be someone who's reacting to things as they emerge. um in the world of politics. And he takes those things to heart. Um, I think Carter feels hemmed in by wanting to kind of project a a kind of sense of national unity around fighting the energy crisis. He wants to project his own presidential power's role in doing that. And yet- (laughs) He's constantly fearful, for good reason, about degenerating into, you know, a a replay of what you've rightfully called the imperial presidency that that Richard Nixon was known for. So there's this desire he has of being a leader, but he wants to be a leader who listens to to ordinary people, who kind of gives voice to ordinary people's concerns. And, And I think that's a real difficult, you know, bind that he faces throughout his presidency, how to exert power without, you know, without turning into what, what Richard Nixon was, um, the mm. Imperial president.
2: So, yeah, there is Nixon, but there was also the idea of the Kennedy mystique, which you touch on a lot in the book. The idea that the sort of this, this ghost of, uh, or the specter of, of Kennedy is, um, coming through, through Ted Kennedy. And do you think that Carter had to escape through the flowing rhetoric of, uh, sort of Kennedy era liberalism as well in the speech. That's a good question. I mean, I think that, you
1: know, I think it's better to be said that like that Kennedy's the aura, you know, the 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 myth of Camelot and all that sort of stuff, um, has been has pretty much disappeared by 1979, at least. Um, and I think that, you know, the fact that it's Ted Kennedy who embodies the kind of Kennedy mythos of of the at that moment. Um, mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, I mean, this was this was still um Someone who just could not escape Chappaquiddick. I mean, this was just a it was a ball and chain uh, Mm -hmm. on on Kennedy's kind of public persona. Um, And the fact that I think Ted Kennedy went in assuming that he could kind of rekindle um, the Kennedy mythos, um, so to speak. Was was really his biggest error um, when he, you know, there's the famous uh, interview with Charles Mudd in which um, basically, you know, if you can, a lot of people say that if you hear, he's asked the question, why are you running for president? And some people claim that if you go and listen to it, it sounds like it could be read backwards um, and make as much sense as what he says as he he gives gives the talk forwards. it's a jumble, it's a word salad. He makes absolutely mm. no sense, and it's it's you know profoundly disturbing because the question is why do you want to be president and he doesn't seem to be able to articulate that mm-hmm. and it seems to suggest that you know what he i mean it was almost like he, the answer he should have probably given was well because my last name's kennedy right mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just that's i mean it gives you a sense of how i think how it, it, the kennedy mythos was really running on fumes um one of the one of carter's uh uh, uh, people who's thinking about the upcoming campaign, and, and Kennedy is going to obviously run against Carter for for the nomination um, to Carter's left, um, makes the quip that, you know, we're not really quite sure what Kennedy stands for, but we do know that he can swim really well.
0: And that's just a <laughs> kind of
1: nasty sort of put-down of Kennedy that, that I think in 1979 really kind of works. The the Kennedy mythos is not what it was, say, in, in 1960.
2: But do you think that Carter can get through his sort of Centrist um, sort of proposals in, in the speech because the Kennedy mythos no longer sort of had the same cachet that it had before.
1: Yeah, I mean, because really, when you look at what Kennedy is 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 um, you know kind of pointing to for his own public uh, philosophy, public policy, public philosophy, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, he's talking about deregulation. Um, it is not. I mean, this is the politics have shifted um, by 1979. I mean, I, I I think the the description of Carter as being a centrist is, is, is spot on. In fact, one of the people who visits, um, Carter during the, during the, um, uh, Camp David meetings is none other than Bill Clinton then governor of Arkansas. Um, and I think you can see sort of, you know, you can see, I don't think Bill Clinton would like to hear this, but you can kind of see the sort of centrism that Clinton becomes known for already being articulated by Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was not a traditional leftist and he wasn't the way Kennedy tries to play himself up to be. He wasn't a kind of, you know, post-war liberal. Um, uh, or progressive, um, he was always kind of charting a, a kind of centrist path, which I think, in some ways, um, you know, uh, made some made a certain amount of sense uh, at this point in time. I think there was the feeling that the loss of the presidency in '68 and then Nixon's landslide in 1972, albeit you know, kind of washed away by Watergate, symbolized the fact that the country was kind of in riding a backlash against the sixties. And writing a backlash against liberalism, and I think Carter knew that, and I think he felt like he needed to find ways to to carve out centrist policies that that would probably not be to the entire liking of the liberal bloc within the Democratic Party, nor would it be to the block to the conservative bloc within the Republican Party.
2: Also, um, you, in your book, you bring up that you bring up that Carter was the last sort of pluralist Southern Baptist. And Carter is known for his sort of religious uh, faith, trying to Mm -hmm. um, frame his foreign policy in a humanist way and things like that. But do you think that his sort of Southern Baptist pluralism comes through in the speech as well? Is 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 he sort of talking about a civic religion that Mm -hmm. Americans have or, or is he actually pulling into more sort of explicitly religious themes?
1: I think it's more. I think it's more the latter. I mean, I do think that he 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 is reading stuff about um, civic religion. Um, one of the people who comes to the Camp David meetings is is the sociologist Robert Bella. Who talks about uh, covenant uh, theology? That is the you know the the original Puritan idea that we we um, we form a bond as a community of people who are escaping from from Britain to find you know something uh, in in the freedom of America to 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 rebond ourselves to one another. The kind of Winthrop idea of a city on a hill. So I mean, there's that is very much um, a part of I think Carter's thinking. The probably the most important I think the, and maybe the most interesting interpretation of this is there's a a, um, uh, a guy uh, who writes uh, Sakvan Berkovich, who writes a book called The American Jeremiah* around the time of, of Carter's speech, and, yep. and I think that Carter's speech clearly fits the kind of Jeremiah model, um, which itself is rooted in, in a kind of Puritan um, religious background. The idea that, you know, we kind of self-flagellate by saying we have fallen from the, the status of our, of our founding fathers, uh, uh, in this case of the church. You know, we've we've grown slack. We've grown lazy. We've forgotten ha- the importance of, of that original formation of the covenant and pledging ourselves to to one another to create a better community we've forgotten that we can look back at it and then we can recuperate it and make our futures better by reminding ourselves of the greatness of those who came before us so that sort of jeremiah is clearly running through, um, uh, the speech. Um, there's this kind of sense of, you know, we once were something we once, we once had a kind of sense of glory and we've kind of fallen from that. Um, and the, and that, that, you know, pattern of talking about the fall from grace is I think one of the things that clearly informs Carter's, um, thinking. And what's weird about that, of course, is that, you know, just as much as you, here's a guy who's steeped in the, all of this kind of religious, um, stuff, you know, he was also an engineer, um, and he was, you know, someone who had a very, very kind of, you know, rational, um, down to earth sort of, you know, side to his persona. And I, again, kind of like the, the desire to be a strong leader and yet not become like a Richard Nixon being a tension in his presidency. You can also say that, you know, there was this kind of tension between the sort of civic religious element of his thinking and the sort of rational, wonky, um, policy driven sort of engineer
2: side of his personality. Um, so yeah, so there's uh, Jerry Falwell and, and, and other sort of religious figures are emerging from, um, from churches into public life and sort of trying to carve out a space for religion in public life. Do you think that was affecting Carter as well at the time?
1: Oh, yeah, it, it definitely was. And there, there are people within his administration who are kind of keeping track of the rise of, of people that we would, you know, now label the new right, yeah. um, the new Christian right. Um, they're well aware. majority. There's, I'm sorry? The moral majority. The moral majority, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, there, there's, there's awareness of that. Um, I, I don't, though, think—I think that, you know, Carter being an evangelical himself, um, being a Baptist— I think knows where some of that is going but it it isn't quite crystalline clear to him at that point in time. That is that you know Carter still can speak as a you know evangelical southerner. But I think he's he's not as well aware of how the kind of rhetoric that a Jerry Falwell is using Uh, That uh, Hal Lindsey is using um, Mm -hmm. that 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 stuff is actually perhaps doing is 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 taking hold in America much stronger than his own views on religion. Because as much as he's talking about, you know, sin and fall from grace and all these kinds of, you know, rich theological ideas, most of that goes back in his own mind to the thinking of um, the greatest, I think the greatest American theologian of the 20th century in America, um, which is um, Reinhold Niebuhr. And Niebuhr was capable of kind of squeezing out of all that discussion of sinfulness and stuff like that a position that still was liberal when it came mm-hmm. to politics. And I think one of the things that Carter is not quite tuned into enough is that his evangelical southernness is going in a direction under the leadership of a Falwell or a Lindsay that's very, very different from his, and maybe um, he should understand has actually more appeal. I think looking back now, we can certainly say you know the 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 transformation of American politics in large part because of televangelism um, that you see, especially as you move into the 1980s, um, really is 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 pushing the country further and further to the right. I think Carter kind of pick up on some of that but i think in some ways his own evangelicalism his own southerness kind of got in the way of him being able to understand the power that the that the new right really was going to have
2: and with, with respect to uh nebo yeah it, it, it's really interesting that um that i, I read your book that nebo was brought up because especially today in contemporary politics with um say, uh, new politicians on the left, you don't really see any attachment to any sort of theological figures, but people like Niebuhr had actually influenced people like Obama and even sort of the thinking of Martin Luther King and people like that. It it does seem like um, sort of religious politicians have gravitated to a different kind of politics.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think the right has really basically hijacked <laughs> um, a lot of you know uh, Christian theology for for its own uh, victories. And and, it, and it, it's, I mean, I think that in some ways, if 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 anybody can get um, at least the message that you know there once was the the ability for someone to be able to say, I am both a liberal in my politics, but I am mm-hmm. also you know a christian believer um i'm an, ev- an i'm an evangelical i do think that there is something out there that that we can call and label sin and um something that we're all stained with um, i think that you know that ability to 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 speak as both a liberal but also as as a uh, you know believer um i think is 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 really crucial on the other hand i think that you know one of the things that we sometimes forget it because i think you know obviously the the the, the big figure looming in, in the story is is obviously the victor in 1980 mm-hmm, no, and Reagan. i think one of the things that we often forget is that reagan's religiosity was pretty um, superficial, um in many ways. I think he believed in the sort of muscular um pro-business Christianity that has become, you know, um, uh, the wealth gospel that, that that dominates a lot of contemporary American um sort of talk. He, Reagan was not a guy who believed in sin. He was not a guy who, um, you know, had a, a kind of critique of, of the hubris of humankind that I think you, you get from, from a Reinhold Niebuhr and that I think Carter believed in. And I think you're right to also identify Obama as believing in. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a really odd sense about like what happens to religion as religion starts to, I think, you know, push for the
2: most part rightward. And just to bring up Reagan, I think you you in your book you attach especially early on, um, Reagan's sort of vision of America to I think films like say the Deer Hunter. You know, like um, mm-hmm. it, Vietnam was no longer seen as sort of like a a bad thing the Americans had done. It was it was actually something that was inherently good, and uh, it was the elites that had stolen. Um, the victory from the sort of working class guys. Reagan seems to embody a populism that uh, Jimmy Carter wasn't able to tap into in this period. Well,
1: yeah, that, now that's the difference between 1980, say, and 1976, right? Because I mean, mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter, when he when he runs, runs fully as as a, what I would call a populist, right? Yeah. Um, he runs. You know, I'm. A, I was a peanut farmer. I, you know, I'm a southerner. I, I, I don't work within within the Beltway. Um, I'm, you know, concerned with the with the forgotten man and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. 76 is really running. I think as a populist. I think what Reagan does um, a, a, a more superb job at is kind of drawing. Out a kind of and 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 yet you know Carter's Carter wants to win public office and 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 he thinks that government has a role to play in in improving America's lives, which I think is also kind of a populist idea. Reagan is really much more effective at basically taking the ire of ordinary citizens and kind of and saying, okay, don't don't blame the banks, don't blame the big corporations, don't blame the energy corporations that have you know in some ways been guilty for 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 creating the energy crisis in the first yeah. place. You know, blame the government. The government's your enemy. Um, government's no longer the, the the solution. Government's the problem. That's I put it in his in inaugural address. And I think that that's sort of you know what we what most historians would just label as right wing populism because it's not directed against the corporate sector; it's directed against the government. That's what Reagan's really I think most successful at doing. And the way that he I think that what's emerging in in the late '70s that's just as important as the New Right is a whole slew of anti taxation campaigns that are that are really hot in California with what's known as proposition 13 but that are spreading throughout the country at the state level where citizens are you know trying to um, basically repeal the tax structure as it exists and that's that's another thing that you know Reagan uses as his kind of populist message it's a, it's an irony because he's basically saying you know what, it, without saying it he's basically saying well, you know we need to cut taxes what he's not saying is that he wants to mostly cut taxes on the wealthiest portion of the United States. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's a weird form of populism when you think about it, because it is, it is so, you know, off the rails from what the original populists were, were all about in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I think what, what the, the kind of populism that Carter was articulating as, as late as 1976.
2: And how do you think Reagan is able to flip the Malay speech, you know, and Reagan. And reacting to um, the Malay speech, he said, I find no national Malays. I find nothing wrong with the American people. Do you think that um, with the reaction to the speech, do you think that people perceive that Carter felt that there was something wrong with the American people?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's exactly it, and I think that that Reagan had, and I think he's being told. I mean, you know, this, Reagan's not necessarily shouldn't be understood as this kind of intellectual genius of politics. He's being advised by pollsters, um, uh, including a, a fairly smart guy who's who's helping him out by the name of Richard Wordland. Um There, you know, a lot of these folks are telling Reagan, look, um, Americans want to feel good about themselves. It's it mm-hmm. that's it. You know, as much as there's other traditions that you can draw upon in terms of the American belief system, uh, there's there's always been this you know optimistic um, side to the American um, mindset that that wants to hear good things about the country, um, likes to think of itself as being you know the 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 island of freedom in a world of corruption or whatever you want to call it, a city on a hill, if you want to use that. Terminology, and I think Reagan really just tapped into this idea that that for him Jimmy Carter was basically scolding the American people when he gave the Crisis of Confidence speech. That he was saying, you know, we we've fallen, and and that we've we've you know we've 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 ruined the country or something like that. That's what I think Reagan is is trying to do. I think one of the things that people for, forget about, and and you know this is something that I've been thinking about recently, and some of the some of the stuff that I've been uh, writing about is that Reagan, I think, read Jimmy Carter's speech as not just him saying he had lost faith with the American people, which is a, which is a close close to a paraphrasing of his of his diaries as I can get. Um, it's not just that he's blaming the American people as Reagan sees it, but you got to remember, um, a large part of the crisis of confidence speech and the, and the part that especially resonated with a lot of people was its digs at consumer culture, um, Mm -hmm. uh, at a culture that basically, you know, put self-interest above everything else. And that, you know, emphasized entertainment and enjoyment and stuff like that. Ronald Reagan's career was so entirely hinged to the entertainment industry. Um, that any attack upon, you know, consumer culture or the entertainment industry would be seen almost as a, like a, a personal attack against him. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, begins as a sports announcer on the radio. Goes to Hollywood, then becomes a host of General Electric's, you know, TV show in the 1950s, where he becomes one of the most highly paid um, stars on American television for the decade of the 1950s. You know, so much of of his background and so much of what he stood for was his belief in the entertainment industry. And I think you know you can't really show this or prove this in necessarily any way, but I think that that's one of the things that really got under Reagan's skin about this about Carter's speech, which was that he was calling into question the kind of entertainment industry and the consumer culture that America was so well known for, and for him those things were sources of pride rather than things that you know maybe created short short term thinking, um, self interest, and the things that Carter kind of condemns. Um,
2: when Carter was thinking about the speech there were other figures apart from Cadell that that influenced him especially in the White House at the time people like Eisenstadt and Mondale why were um, especially Mondale why was he so nervous about the speech that Carter was about to give
1: because i think he he foresaw the way that it could be i don't think he's he thought it was this but i think he foresaw the way that it could be interpreted as an as a condemnation of a, of american citizens as being you know selfish greedy self-seeking people and that this was not going to be something that you want the president to say i think mondale kind of miscalculated how much kind of self-doubt there really was uh, amongst the American citizenry at the time. But I think he was, you know, he had, I, I suppose, what you could call a little bit better of a political ear than, than mm-hmm. necessarily Jimmy Carter did. Um, and I think Jimmy Carter was, you know, someone who basically always said, you know, I want to be honest. I want to be forthright. I want to basically... You know, spell it out to the American people the way I want to see it. Eisenstadt, I think, is also very much like Mondale, worried about the um, about the, the the nature of the speech. One of the things that he insists upon is that the speech have a kind of clear cut policy, um, uh, you know, uh, component to it. And if you read the speech, some people will. Argue, and I think that this assessment is is accurate. And it feels almost like that there are two speeches. One is the speech about the civic crisis, which is the one that Jimmy Carter most wanted to give and, and get beyond the energy um, crisis and look deeper. Then there is the part of the speech that's really about the energy policy that he's that he's calling for, um, which is which is rather wonky. That's Eisenstein. So in some ways, the speech can be seen as like you know the the, the crisis of confidence, civic crisis, is the Cadell speaking. Um, and Carter speaking, um, because he, he thinks that Cadell is right to, to write the speech as it is. And then there's this kind of, you know, tagged on almost um, uh, policy component to the speech. And so the, the speech often has a kind of almost like a, you know, split personality, so to speak. And I think that's because um, that's the side that, the Mondale, that Mondale and Eisenstadt insisted be put into this other speech about the, the civic crisis
2: what other media considerations do you think Carter had at this time because you know given speeches on inflation that weren't very well received do you think that the way the media had been uh, and and, uh, and Carter's own polls had shown that uh, that Carter was you know obviously like he was he's being perceived as less popular than even Nixon do, do you think those considerations impacted the way uh, the speech was written um,
1: you, you, I don't, I don't see it that way. Um, I, 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 I think that, I don't think that, that Carter, I mean, Carter just, I don't think he thought about politics that way for him. That would have been sort of, you know, amoral or, or not. Attended- wow. You know, yeah, which is, you know, I think what why why again, um, there there are some people who read certain portions of the speech at least today and say, Wow, this is, you know, a, a politician speaking honestly. Um mm-hmm. and now that, that that can and, and, and you know, the immediate reaction to the speech, including on the on the part of the media, is that it gives him the, one of the few big bumps in a in 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 rising numbers in his polls, um, immediately after the speech. But then what he does is that he turns around and, and fires his entire, you know, central staff. And, yeah. and 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 people are like, Well, wait a second, there was nothing in the speech that suggested that you had to do something like that. And it just and, and so again, his his poll numbers plummet because of that. The speech itself seems to have given a boost that he then kind of kills off himself. And in some ways, you know, Carter's the sort of, you know, almost like there's a sort of tragic dimension to his, to his, you know, views of leadership. Um, he, he does, I think, honestly want to speak the truth. I think he's tired of politicians lying to the American people about how, you know, the, is, is, can we sustain the sort of you know uh, consumer culture that we've built up since the since the end of World War II? I think there's profound doubt about that on, on Carter's part. I think he believes that there have to be um, that that America's values have to be grounded in something you know more philosophical or religious based than just materialism. I mean, I think he honestly believes that sort of stuff. What he doesn't seem to have, uh, he never had a real great gift for, was knowing how these things could also play be played against him. And um, and there were people who were out there ready to play against them. Um, and, I, you know, obviously the most important not is not the media. Um, the most important person to, to play it against him is, is Ronald Reagan, um, who, mm-hmm. who you know, vanquishes.
2: But the media does um, sort of spread the idea that it is the Malay speech even though yes. it isn't in the speech itself. Yes.
1: That's, that's absolutely right. Med-
2: don't you think the media may be given that the the initial reaction to the speech was, well, 85%, or you had all this great mail about the speech, um, positive reaction, do you think that it was the media that, that twisted it, uh, the speech f- for, the, uh, for the audience first? Or do you think it was the, the politicians like Reagan who were able to to do that? I think it's more the
1: latter. Um, I mean, I don't think I think the the media is you're you're right. The media is the it's the first institution that that coins this phrase malaise that comes out of like certain interviews with people who are you know reacting to the speech um, a, as the speech is rolled out. Um, I think though, you know, I don't think that the that the media. Was basically, I mean, it, it would suggest that the media was like playing into the hands of Ronald Reagan, which I don't really think that there's an awful lot of evidence of. I think mm-hmm. that basically it it is it is both it's both Reagan and Ted Kennedy. Who basically used the speech as a kind of you know whipping post to take it to Carter, um, and I think that they're you know they they saw the political possibilities of saying you know well you might call it the crisis of confidence speech, you might say that there were some important things that you were talking about in terms of America's failures and so forth and so on, but I mean really what they're looking for is you know political victory, and so I, I would if if I was asked the question you know is is the media to blame for the kind of misunderstanding of the speech that that kind of followed in its wake or is the politicians who were running against Carter? I would say it was the politicians running against Carter. And again, I mean, it, you know, it's it's so clear that, that, that Reagan's own pollster, um, kind of the counterpart to, to Pat Cadell, um, yeah, work, exactly. is basically, you know, is feeding him this line. I mean, he's saying, you know, look, you know, th- we can really play this speech, even though it was originally kind of um, highly appreciated, we really can play this speech um, negatively. And so, I mean, there, it, it, there's no doubt in my mind that there was a strategy there. Um, it was not just, you know, people like thinking, oh, well, we can poo-poo the speech. It was people who thought we can win the election in 1980 by turning this speech against Carter himself.
2: So what do you think the implications are for honesty in politics um, from the speech? It's a pretty pessimistic, uh, you know... Because conclusion. when Reagan says, you know, we can make the what Republicans should feel like we can make the world over again so it's yes. sort of flowing um conservative but flowing sort of rhetoric from from Reagan yeah
1: yeah no I mean I think that, that there's the 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 language of dreams um the language of being able the to land,
2: language of Hollywood
1: language of Hollywood, the, yeah. the language of believing what you want to believe that if, if belief brings you, um, uh, a, a, a kind of, you know, faithfulness and the ability to do good in the world, then believe what you want to believe. I think that's in large part, you know, um, uh, Reagan's, uh, sort of, uh, projected vision for, for leadership. Um, you know, there's the famous, a uh, case in which uh, uh, Reagan is at giving a, a, a Medal of Honor um, and he starts breaking it. And this is when he's in the presidency. Um, I think it's 82 83. And he'll basically come out and he'll say, um, he'll start telling a story about a plane going down. And about how um, the the officer in charge stays with this young man who was wounded in the plane and says, okay, son, we'll go ride this, you know, we'll ride this thing together and then falls to his death and then eventually gets a, a Medal of Honor awarded to him. Which, of course, if any journalist is listening to, would be saying to themselves, wait a second, how can you recount dialogue between people who died, <laughs> you know, this just doesn't make <laughs> sense. And in fact, one journalist looks it up and he, and he starts to kind of, you know, look through and trying to figure out where, what's the, what's the source of the story. He comes up with the idea that it was either something he had read in Reader's Digest mm-hmm. or it's a movie called A Wing and a Prayer and, and which came out in like during the war and you know the the question is given to one of reagan's advisors you know well you know he's he's making stuff up here right i mean what 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 how do you how do you deal with this and the and the famous quote about reagan's public rhetoric was you know if you say something five times it's true um it doesn't matter if it's actually true it's just that you say it enough times and then people say okay yeah it's true and i think that i mean you know obviously today we're living with that model of leadership um and and it, it makes me <sighs> I mean, I guess I'm, my optimism, if, if there is any of it, it suggests that, you know, yeah, the, the speech was was actually very well received. A tough speech about the status of American life was well received when it was originally given. Who knows what would have happened if he hadn't fired his staff and all that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The pessimistic side to me says that, you know, Ronald Reagan won. And he won in large part upon a, a kind of model of politics that, about if you have faith and, and, and confidence in yourself, um, project it. And it doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter, you know, that you, you don't have to be honest in order to, to to win political office and to assume leadership of the country.
2: So given that, you know, Reagan seems to be like Don Quixote with the truth, why do you think that the reaction to Carter's speech um, later on was that it was too massaged and it had too much sort of public relations behind it? Um... I think
1: that's kind of I think that's the, the 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 misunderstanding of the speech kind of coming back into um you know the the contemporary into our contemporary world. Um, I think that, I mean, there is no doubt that Carter was fastidious and a, a, an incredible note taker when he was at Camp David. He is jotting things down and he's putting it in onto postcards. And and so sometimes, you know, the speech can kind of sound as we listen to it, um, going back to it, it can kind of sound stilted, maybe a little bit like you're saying massaged, but, I really think that, you know, the, the, that he gave, I mean, the fact that he said, the fact that he canceled the first speech, because he said, this is something that I've, I've been saying this stuff that you've written up in the speech over and over and over again, and it's not getting through. And I don't want to bullshit the American people, which is, I think, you know, surprising to hear from a, you know, Southern evangelical talking that way, mm-hmm. I mean, kind of like Richard Nixon, right? Um, you know, I, I think that like, that, that, that he honestly, um, uh, wanted to give a tough speech. He wanted to give a speech where he admitted to his own errors as much as he also said there's something wrong in America's soul, so to speak. And I think that um, – I think he honestly believed that. I think it's kind of cynical to think that, like, this was sort of, you know – crafted in a way that like they thought this was going to succeed at building up you know a better sense of public relations i think that's a little bit of us projecting our own kind of cynicism onto a a a a moment in american history where it just doesn't necessarily
0: belong Mm. finally kevin in this past week we've seen the passing of george bush senior when any president dies their legacy is immediately brought up for judgment on both a, on both a personal and political level, how do you think Carter will be remembered?
1: Um, that's a that's that's a tough one to to think about. I think that he will be remembered as one of the last presidents. Although I guess you could say that Obama has some of this um, has picked up on some of this himself. But I think Carter still is one of the last presidents, as we were saying earlier, who kind of spoke through a language of Christian morality and uh, of his religious faith in a way that actually still pushed in a kind of liberal or, you know, as some people would call today, a more progressive direction than what we expect from religious leaders today. And which it feel, you know, we I think we live in a society where it feels at least like religion has kind of grafted itself to the right rather than to you know the liberal center that that Carter stood for i think he will be recognized as a president who was honest and fairly straightforward with the American people, um, at least during the, 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 the period of time that I have in, in this story. I think the, the one thing to keep in mind is that, and we didn't really talk about this as much, but you know, by late 1979 um, and, and, into nine, and then pushing into 1980, you have the hostage crisis in Iran and you also have the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And Carter really does a, an about phase um, uh, at, at that moment during his presidency. Really, I think changes his course. But I think that throughout his presidency, he will be recognized as someone who was who's honest, who didn't want to, as I said, bullshit the American people. Um, someone who I think had a kind of clear. A religiously grounded viewpoint about what should tie the country together i think he was a, a, a person who worried about um, that he'll be remembered as a president who worried about whether or not the consumer culture that america's known for is necessarily the healthiest um, thing or the best for civic fiber um I, you know and and i think you know he's also going to be remembered for someone as who probably didn't, Understand that some of the things that he was doing um, were going to do him much more political damage than he could ever really understand fully. Um, a tin ear towards politics is probably the best way to put it. His wife seemed to have a better ear, as did, did Walter Mondale um, and Stuart Eisenstadt. Um, but I think you know, I, 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 even with that in mind, um, you know, having a tin ear towards politics can sometimes mean that you're a good leader. Um, it means that you're not just, you know, saying things that people want to hear. You're, you're, you're actually making decisions that are tough decisions, and and that you think are in the best interest of the country. So, I mean, I think that he'll be remembered, um, kind of in in the way that he probably deserves to be, mixed. Um, you know, some some strong elements to his presidency that often get overlooked. Um, especially if you're a viewer of the Simpsons and then um, you know uh, the elements of, of his presidency that where he I think was maybe a little bit too much had maybe too high an expectation for his ability to play the, the political gamesmanship that you know like it or not you have to do if you, if you want to win and hold public office
0: well sadly that's all we've got time for in today's episode um, Kevin it's been a, a real delight having you on the show uh, thank you so much and we'd love to have you back on another time that's great. I I'd, I'd love to. From Kevin, Toby and myself, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye.